0: Welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ren Levy. Have you ever been obsessed? I'm not talking about being really into something. Not, OMG, I'm obsessed with K-pop. I mean, really obsessed. Something that took over your life. You couldn't stop thinking about it. It had control over you. It was as a teenager that Albert Gonzalez, one of the few greatest cybercriminals in history, developed the obsession that would go on to ruin his life. But before all that, he was just an ordinary kid. Really, his dad was the interesting one in the family. In the early 70s, Alberto Gonzalez Sr. built a handmade raft with two friends and used it to try and cross the Caribbean. He was two days on the water when an American submarine spotted him in the Florida Strait and the Coast Guard cutter came to the rescue. It was a classic immigrant story, coming over with nothing, having to work from the bottom. He moved to Miami, started a landscaping company, and married a fellow Cuban, Maria, in 1977. Alberto and Maria lived at 32nd Street and 64th Avenue in a working-class neighborhood south of downtown Miami. Their house was small but pretty, with palm trees, flowers, a Spanish-tiled roof, and a driveway out front that awkwardly overlaps with what looks like a half-finished sidewalk. Like many other Cuban emigres, they were politically conservative, church-going people. And their son, Albert Jr., was a fine kid, close with his parents and his sister, outgoing with friends, helpful with his father's landscaping company. He was handsome, tan, skinny, with black hair cut short. His grades were good. And then...
1: When he was 12, he bought his first computer.
0: A lot of us computer geeks have the same origin story, your first computer being totally enamored by it, spending all day in your room coding or playing games. Albert liked his computer, yes, but he only became obsessive over it after something unfortunate happened, something that knocked him onto a different trajectory than you and I. His new computer contracted a virus. Alberto Sr. and Maria called in the technician that sold them the machine. But the boy was hardly as sad or scared as you'd expect him to be in that situation. He was frustrated, annoyed, and maybe a little curious. He later recalled, I had all these questions for him. How do I defend myself from this? Why would someone do this? Albert decided to get to the bottom of the virus thing and just kept going further and further into the rabbit hole. At first, it didn't seem too bad. His family figured he could turn computers into a career if he really liked them this much. And as a family friend recalled, quote, his dad said it's better than him getting high or running around with gangs. End quote. But then Albert junior schoolwork fell away. He had less time for chores and landscaping. His relationships deteriorated, and he became more troublesome in the house. His sister later described how, quote, he would sit at the computer for hours at a time. He went from being an extroverted and talkative kid to quiet, introverted, and obsessed. End quote. It was becoming clear that this computer thing wasn't just a hobby. It was unhealthy. His mother begged him to see a psychologist, but he wouldn't. His father even convinced some of his friends in the local police to stage an arrest. It didn't work. By 1995, at age 14, Albert was using stolen credit cards from the dark web to buy video games, albums, and shoes. Oh, and he was part of a group that hacked into NASA. Now, if this were anything other than the Malicious Life podcast, that would seem like the crazy part of the story. But you've heard this one before, right? There were the Australian kids that disrupted a space shuttle launch using the Wankworm in 1989. In fact... Albert isn't even the only teenager from Miami to have hacked NASA in the 90s. A few years after Albert did it, a 15-year-old named Jonathan James, who lived an 8-minute drive from Albert's house, according to Google Maps, would steal safety-critical source code running the International Space Station. So perhaps what's most surprising isn't what Albert did, but how he handled himself next. Because it was shortly thereafter, about halfway into his freshman year, when a couple of nice folks visited the principal's office at South Miami High School, asking for him. They were employees of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They invited Albert Jr., Albert Sr., and their lawyer, a family friend, to the FBI's office in Miami. An agent sat with a boy, and they spoke for over four hours. The FBI wanted to know how he'd put it off. The lawyer recalled, quote, hours in, the guy pulls us into the hallway and says, this kid is amazing. He's running circles around me, End quote. The agents agreed not to prosecute if Mr. and Mrs. Gonzalez took away their son's computer for six months. Albert went back to school. And you'd think that'd be the end of it. Albert Gonzalez was now in the crosshairs of the FBI. Any reasonable person would quit after that and get a new hobby. But do you know what Albert did instead? Not much different. When he got his computer back, he picked right back where he'd left off. And by the time he graduated high school, he was far more prolific, spending more time devoted to even more serious cybercrimes. It's a pattern you'll notice about him. It's pathological. At certain points in his story, Albert will face more of these inflection points, these exit doors alternate paths he could take to make his life vastly better. Choices that you and I would take in a second that really only have one reasonable answer, but he just keeps committing cybercrimes. And that's the big thing about obsession. Even when a big fat warning sign slaps you in the face, even when there's a better choice available, it's just not enough. Because... Obsession is not logical. Albert Gonzalez and some of his friends would go on to pull off some of the most remarkable crimes in the history of computers. But they just didn't know when to stop. If they did, they might have gotten away with it. They might not have ruined their lives. Or, in one case, ended their life. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our Future Ready Attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. And the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. ends cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Albert's first cyber crew called themselves the Kibler Elves, like the Cookies. It was with them that he hacked NASA and some other high-profile targets, like the home website of the Indian government. But the Kibler Elves weren't so much a criminal enterprise as some kids who just wanted to cause trouble. Like, after hacking the Indian government, they did little except proclaim victory and post-offensive jokes like, quote, What's with the red dot? And why are your women so ugly? Not very nice, but not the kind of thing that's going to cause much damage, either. It was the same with most of their targets. At two AM on Tuesday in nineteen ninety nine, the elves hacked the US Storm Prediction Center website, replacing the weather data with their own message in all caps quote Ha power learn to fear the elite kibler elves. They also posted more cryptic messages, along with dictionary definitions for the words elves, elite, hack, and fear. Technicians at the prediction center had to do overtime, replacing their data from backups, but that was about it. A couple of folks vented about just how annoying and pointless it all was to a local paper. Quote, there's nothing destroyed or completely lost, just a really big headache, end quote.
1: If you could start off by just briefly introducing yourself. My name is Sherry Davidoff. I'm the CEO of LMG Security and the author of the book Data Breaches.
0: Sherry is going to be our interview guest for this mini series.
1: The Keebler Elves demonstrated that they had some power. They would deface websites. So that can make you feel really powerful as a teenager.
0: Under the name Soup Nazi, the young Albert told ZDNet, quote, Defacing a site, to me, is showing the admins and government that go to the site that we own them, End quote. You can see the appeal, right? How you could get sucked in. I remember feeling small and powerless in high school. Now imagine showing up to first period English class the morning after defeating NASA or the government of India you probably won't be so focused on Chapter 6 of To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: But for Albert, it was more than just defacing websites. He also discovered that when he broke into these websites, he often had access to credit cards. And that's where he started to differentiate himself from some of the other hackers who were just doing it for play. So he started using the credit cards, buying things like clothes and CDs and having them shipped to houses in Miami. He was very good at not only stealing things like credit card numbers, but monetizing them, which is not something that every hacker was good at.
0: Don't forget, at this point in the story, Albert is still like 14 years old.
1: So he would have that merchandise delivered to unoccupied houses. And then during lunch break at school, he would have his friends drive him around to go and pick up his new wares.
0: Through his teenage years, Albert became increasingly adept at dividing his personality. After Nessa and losing his computer for six months, he picked his grades back up somewhat and didn't cause as much trouble in school or at home, but online he was still soup Nazi, still an elf. Albert graduated high school and then enrolled in community college in 1999, but he didn't even stay a semester. He was more of an autodidact anyway. He decided to teach himself how to hack ISPs for free broadband through reading their software manuals.
1: And again, he was doing something that was a little smarter than the average bear. He would break in, he would get access to their computers, and he would learn how the ISP worked.
0: Quote, On their computers would always be a huge stash of good information, network diagrams, write-ups. I would learn about system architecture. It was as if I was an employee.
1: He would understand their processes. He ended up breaking into an ISP in New Jersey. So remember, he's in, Mi- he's in Miami. He breaks into an ISP in New Jersey, and he ends up convincing them to hire him as part of their security team.
0: Albert cycled through a few different jobs during this period in his life. He moved to the east side of Manhattan, worked for a dot-com company shortly before they went bust, and Simmons before they relocated. He moved out to a new job, renting an apartment in the town of Kearney, New Jersey, north of New York, where things were especially quiet and most of his neighbors were retirees. It was all rather uninventful compared with what he was doing after hours. While moonlighting as an IT guy living amongst the elderly, Albert was active in one of the great hacker forms of history. It's the early 2000s, and you and I are on shadowcrew.com. What's it like here?
1: So Shadow Crew is groundbreaking. It's like a supermarket for hackers. You can buy and sell credit card numbers, you can get fake IDs, you can get diplomas, you can get whole packages of identities which allow you to commit fraud.
0: Shadow Crew was a hub of crime, but also a community for thousands of cybercriminals worldwide. It was that classic kind of black hat form that really only could have existed back in the days. Really, the web domain was literally www.shadowcrew.com. Hardly the dark web. You could get there as easily as you could yahoo.com.
1: There are also how-tos involving carding, forums. Um, You can learn about things outside of stealing information or hacking, things like um, you can purchase prescription drugs or cocaine.
0: Or, quote, how to use a stolen credit card number, forge a driver's license, defeat a burglar alarm, or silence a gun.
1: Uh, you can also buy services like distributed de- denial-of-service attacks, pay somebody to take out, down a website. You can pay somebody to take a test for you. So Shadow Crew was pretty much this um, huge site that was de- dedicated to crime online.
0: Shadow Crew was at the heart of a broader shift in cybercrime, from reckless lone hackers defacing nasa.gov for fun to more organized, business-like cybercriminals doing real damage and making good money off of it. Today, we have groups like Darkseid, the people behind the colonial pipeline attack, that operate like corporations with their own in-house management, accounting, PR, and customer relations personnel. Shadow Crew was like an embryo that spawned all that. Sherry describes in her book data breaches, crisis, and opportunity, how formal and well-organized it all was. Quote, vendors from around the world applied to sell their goods and, once approved, provided quote, a dizzying array of illicit products and services. Vendors wishing to sell their products on ShadowCrew were required to go through a formal vetting process the prospective vendor would send a sample of his or her product to a designated Shadow Crew member who would evaluate it and write a review. One federal prosecutor later referred to Shadow Crew as, quote, an eBay, Monster.com, and MySpace for cybercrime, end quote. Soup Nazi, now Kumbajoni was not just a member, but an admin. Far from his days having fun with the Kibler elves, he was now collaborating with criminals from around the world to steal and monetize over a million stolen credit cards. Sometimes he did it himself, taking stolen cards, copying the data onto blanks, and then feeding them into ATMs. They were called cash-out trips. We're at a Chase Bank ATM on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, July 2003.
1: He goes in shortly before midnight. Why? Because usually there's a limit, for a daily limit for withdrawing money from ATMs. So if he goes there around midnight, he can use all of the cards that he's printed, cash-out, and then wait until after midnight and use them a second time and get more cash from those accounts. So his timing is very purposeful. He goes to the ATM wearing this long black wig. He's got a fake nose ring and he has 70 blank debit, and credit, debit cards on him. So he starts feeding these into an ATM. And what he doesn't know is that there is a plainclothes NYPD detective who's watching him. The detective is actually out hunting for car thieves. But once he starts seeing this woman feeding cards into an ATM and not leaving, he realizes that something's up.
0: Albert was brought into an NYPD station. Quickly, news of his arrest reached the office of the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, and also the Secret Service, who'd been investigating Shadow Crew. It's a bit strange, maybe. Why did the people who bodyguard the president care about computer hackers?
1: So over the years, of course, as digital crimes emerged, that has evolved into the Secret Service investigating really all kinds of digital financial crimes.
0: Escorting presidents and investigating hackers. I don't get it either, but there you go.
1: They investigate this type of fraud, but they're not making a whole lot of progress on it. So after Gonzalez is caught, he's debriefed, and word gets to the Electronic Crimes Task Force, and they realize that Albert could potentially help them nab other people who were committing the same types of crimes.
0: They didn't just want Albert. They wanted Shadow Crew. And he wasn't in a position to tell them no. They had his computer with millions of stolen credit cards on it already in evidence. He later recalled to a New York Times reporter how, quote, I was 22 years old and scared. When you have a Secret Service agent in your apartment telling you you'll go away for 20 years, you'll do anything.
1: I think that's a really poignant quote because, again, Albert really did care about the community. He didn't feel good about busting other people, but it's clear he felt like he was between a rock and a hard place.
0: I know what I'd do in his position. I'd start squealing like a pig.
1: At the time, he's also addicted to drugs, um, cocaine, other drugs. He also smokes, so he's not in a very good place from a health perspective. And he needs more money to support his habits than he has.
0: The Secret Service handed Albert the kind of deal he couldn't refuse.
1: They offered to pay for his living expenses. They helped him work through his withdrawal. And in exchange, they wanted him to help them. And they also offered to not throw him in jail.
0: They even proposed a salary of $75,000 a year. Adjusting for inflation, that's six figures in today's money. A pretty good job offer, even if you're not on the hook for international cyber theft. Albert, wasn't completely out of his mind, so he accepted their terms. And that means, if you're keeping track, the guy who got a job at an ISP by hacking them now landed a job with the government by stealing from millions of people. You've got to admit, he stands out from other job candidates. though it must have made for an awkward first day on the job. He certainly didn't blend in with his co-workers. One Secret Service agent recalled that quote. He was extremely thin. He smoked a lot. His clothes were disheveled. So now they partner up, Albert and the Secret Service. I can't imagine that it was an immediately good partnership.
1: I thought it was so so interesting you said that because... By all accounts it was by all accounts it was an amazing partnership.
0: Albert was closest with an agent named Michael. Michael told the Times quote In the beginning he was quiet and reserved, but then he started opening up. He started to trust us. He was very respectable, very nice, very calm, very well spoken.
1: Albert was an excellent educator. He was very patient. He was very calm. He was very nice. He built friendships with the Secret Service agents. He really opened their eyes and helped them understand his world and how it worked.
0: It really seemed like Albert was trying to help. Another agent told the New York Times how, quote, he could be very disarming if you let your guard down. I was well aware that I was dealing with a master of social engineering and deception. But I never got the impression he was trying to deceive us. Albert developed genuine relationships with some of the agents. A couple of his buddies called him Soup after his hacker handle and the stability of his new lifestyle started having a positive effect on his well-being. He may have come in extremely thin and disheveled, but, quote, over time he gained weight, started cutting his hair shorter, and shaving every day. It was having a good effect on his health, quote. In short, Albert had redeemed himself. He turned a corner. He'd no longer had to steal credit cards and deal with the shady underbelly of society. But the thing about obsession is that it's illogical. It makes you do things that are against your own interests. You can be presented with perfectly good exits, alternate paths that any reasonable person would take in a second, that really only have one good answer and still go the wrong way. Just as it was at 14, at age 20, Albert was given a choice. Two paths. The dark side and the light side. And for the second time, he went... the wrong way. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. It's been a quiet week here at PI Media, so I've got nothing much to say except that it seems that, sadly, despite our best intentions, I won't be attending Black Hat 2021 this coming August, after all. However, I'll probably be attending the upcoming Podcast Movement Convention in Nashville, Tennessee, so if you see me there, come say hi. Our website is malicious.life and you can follow us on Twitter at @malicious_life Malicious Life or me at, at @ranlevi. R-A-N-L-E-V-I. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Sound design by Benora Bari. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com.
1: Bye-bye. Oh